Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Hello and welcome to TV Show and Tell, the fairy on top of your television tree. I'm David Bodicombe, I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, known internationally as The Format Doctor. And on today's show, we're delighted to welcome a special guest who's one of the UK's most influential producers. Richard McCarrow is co-founder of Love Productions, best known for the Great British Bake Off and, most recently, The Piano. We'll also discuss how a game show avoids bankrupting the production, and we'll look at an interesting live TV stunt from Germany. But we've got a lot to get through today, so what have you found on the news front, Justin? So, as you probably know, Top Gear has now been rested, <laughs> whatever that means. Won't come back for the foreseeable future after Freddie Flintoff was hurt in the crash last year. What I picked up on was James May being interviewed on, on Radio 4, the Today programme, yes. um, where he said, I think it's time for a new format, a new approach. And I thought that was an interesting thing to say because, as as he rightly said, there's been a number of different formats of Top Gear. Yes, it's been around for a very long time, but if you go back in time, it's gone through quite a few different iterations. It was only really when James May and Richard Hammond and Jeremy Clarkson came together that the and and Andy Wilman as well that the most familiar structure for the show came about and it's always been a, a magazine show ultimately you know one of the issues when it went to become the grand tour was you know what are the format elements that it could or couldn't take with it because you know three middle-aged men standing in a warehouse talking about something that's not a format but so I was interested in what makes it as a format and also what a, what he means by a new approach or what a new approach could be. I think also what he said was that there was uh, it was an interesting time for cars in terms of how are they made, how are they recycled, what do people do with them, how do you manage, manage the flow of them. Mm. There's, there's a lot of convers- there's, a, there's a big conversation to be had about where cars are headed. Yeah. It's, a, it's sort of a little bit like a metaphor for the television industry, really, in that there's sort of like a legacy technology that's still kind of trundling on and hanging on by its fingertips, but there's also new mm. versions of that technology that are obviously going to be the future. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, no, you're right. Show which essentially got its mojo from high-end, high-performance cars that nobody could afford, entering an era where your car may simply be a box that drives you around, to which you pay no attention whatsoever, because it's just like your washing machine doing your washing while you do something else. It's definitely going to, if if that actually happens, it's definitely going to change the way we think about cars. I, I know a lot of much younger people who don't drive for a start, and if they do drive, you know, they, they just pick up an e-car when they happen to need one um, and drive that. And they're the generation, because, I mean, I enjoy driving, so I, I don't want a car to drive me about particularly. I quite like cruise control, but that's about it. But there is definitely, apart from the environmental reasons, I think it's like a lot of things that we're used to doing that other people 
just see as a chore that they'd rather hand over to, to something else. And also they don't want to own things in the same way, which I think has also changed. It's going to be a bit of a hard brief to come up with a new format, if that's what James Mim wants, though, because it's going to be very easy to make a more dull version of that show. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of making it more entertaining, it's it's going to be very tough. So <laughs> it's a hard, it's a hard line to balance on. If that's the wrong yeah. metaphor. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, but then cars are less interesting. I mean, you know, they are quite boring. And when you see the adverts for cars, they're all quite similar. Mm. You know, the, the, and the standout cars are utterly unaffordable again. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think part of the BBC's statement was very much about not only changing the, the, the health and safety issues around the way the show is made, but also the combination of budgets and deadlines and so on, the length of time it takes to make these films. Clearly, what I read from their statement was a, an implication that pressures on making the show may have contributed in some way to the challenges of making it safely. And that going forwards, they I'll fundamentally will not be able to do the kind of stunts they were doing before. Yeah. And and if and without the stunts, you know, Top Gear probably does go back to being a magazine show where we talk about engines. And if there isn't an engine, then <laughs> I think that's probably the end of that. Anyway, anybody out there who has an idea for the new format and the new approach for Top Gear, let us know and we'll talk about it. So there's been various shows brought back in the UK and there's more to come. It's been interesting seeing how they've landed, though, with the audience. So, for example, in the BBC side, we've had Survivor go out during the weekend, Cheek by Jowl with the Strictly Come Dancing. Then on ITV side, we've had Deal or No Deal, which has gone in as a fairly logical slot. 4pm as a warm-up to The Chase, which is an immovable £900 gorilla of a show, which people will complain if uh, The Chase isn't on. (laughs) And um, certainly on the BBC side, Survivor is definitely struggling. It's sort of about 2 million. I think some of the later episodes have trended upwards, so maybe they're they're feeling a little bit happier about those figures. Whereas Deal or No Deal, even though the prize that's on offer is about 40% of what the original Channel 4 show was, because they're only giving away up to £100,000, the initial indications for that is doing pretty well. So it's it's coming in at 2.5 million on ITV at 4pm. Okay, that's not bad. So that's pretty good for that slot mm, as, a, mm. as a warm up. And arguably, the lesson is schedule the shows in, in places where people expect them. Because mm. I think Survivor being a show about betrayal doesn't really feel like something you want up against people doing cha cha chas and spangly outfits. Mm. It seemed to be a bit of a bit of a junction, a bit of a mood change. Whereas Deal or No Deal fits right in with with where it's been placed. It also has a little bit to do with localization as well. Um, you know, Strictly is very homegrown. It feels very British. It feels, you know, very Blackpool, end of the pier and all of that. And Survivor is, you know, far, far away. And yes, obviously things like I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here during the week are, are that as well. But yeah, Survivor just feels like a very strange fit for the BBC um, and also in that slot. What I found when I was watching some of the Survivor shows was that the games are a lot more static than I had in my head. A lot of them are just people 
balancing on something or, or holding something for a long time mm. um, or walking around in, in a pool of water and mm. maybe thinking of an amazing race perhaps because I think they had a bit more to it. I did ask some friends about this and they said well in the American show that the, the trope for the Survivor Games was maybe something like you'd have to do something really physically demanding and then you'd have to go off and finish a puzzle so that the sort of the, the physical wear and tear of, of standing mm. on a shifting some weights around yeah. would, would affect your... It would discombobulate you when you're trying to do a jigsaw. Um, so I think the American shows do have a little bit more to them with the games. But yeah, I was a little bit disappointed with the, the challenges on Survivor, I have to be honest. So how many how many episodes is it in now? Uh, I think... It, well, oh, yeah. <laughs> who knows? Because it depends on how, how many you've downloaded... I, th- I think as as we speak now, we're up to about ten. I think, right? If right. you're going by the BBC schedule, but yeah. And it's is it still tracking down? I think only just now people have started to cotton on to it and say, oh, "Actually, this is an okay show." I don't think it had the impact they wanted to at the start, but yeah. now that we're getting to the sharp end, it's it's tra- trending upwards. Yeah. So another show that's been revived rather surprisingly um, is Connections with James Burke. So if you go back all the way back to the BBC in 1978, there was a show with uh, science and science historian James Burke, where he basically looked at the history of technology through the prism of connections between things. So rather than looking at it in an entirely linear way, he would look at something like energy or something like that, and he would explore how through connections between different cultures and technologies and the rest of it around the world, this thing had developed and become a, a major piece of science. And it was quite infamous at the time for its cost, because he would literally he would literally say something like, and then oil, and we'd cut to James on an oil rig in the North Sea, which comes from, and then we'd find him, you know, in Texas or somewhere. It was extraordinarily, you know, I mean, it was great. I remember, I remember finding it, you know, very exciting as a child because it was jumping around all over the world. But in the days of, of you know, shooting on film and all the rest of it, it must have been incredibly expensive to make. And it only lasted one series. It was also the source of what's been called the world's best ever television shot. Uh, goes viral on the internet sometimes of him doing a piece to camera and then saying, like this, and turning around and then uh, in the background a rocket sets off, which is all <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he had He obviously only had one possible chance to get the timing of that exactly right, because the console goes, sorry, 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 I missed the time there. Can we get the rocket back, please? That's funny. Well, anyway, after it had a couple of very brief revivals uh, in the 90s on TLC. But anyway, it's coming back on Curiosity Stream. So Curiosity Stream, if you don't know it, is a streamer that's dedicated to uh, science and history and nature and, and sort of biography of, of influential people. Mm-hmm. And they are bringing it back. They're bringing it back. I don't know how old James Burke is now, but they are bringing it back. And you're going to be looking again at how different threads of knowledge connect seemingly unrelated ideas. And this time he's going to be looking at AI, unsurprisingly, and quantum computing. 
And it says that one of the things he'll be doing is jumping into a sensory deprivation tank with a man who took LSD with dolphins. (laughs) So there's a sentence that you wouldn't have connected with James Burke. So I'm quite looking forward to that. I'm definitely going to check it out because I love the original and I always liked James Burke. I actually had him on a show called Don't Quote Me back in the 90s which was a show about things that people wish they hadn't said quotations show and we always used to have one guest that we ambushed and i happened to have the tomorrow's world book of the future which i (laughs) got as a child in which james burke had made a lot of predictions and throughout the show we kept saying and who said this and he every single time he said i don't know i don't know who said that we went, it was you. <laughs> so I think he probably hates me. <laughs> but I love him, so I'll definitely go and see his show. He's he's 86, so he's, he's a comparative youngster to David Attenborough, oh. who's 97. So, yeah. Oh, right. Oh, 86, bloody. Well, maybe not quite so much jumping about. There we go. <clears throat> Richard McCarrow is the co-founder, CEO and Chief Creative Director of Love Productions, the company behind a slew of hits in genres from documentary to social experiment and talent show to elimination formats. Let's hear from him now. Our guest today is Richard McCarrow, the Creative and Managing Director of Love Productions, which he co-founded with Anna Beatty in 2004. Before that, he was commissioning editor for education at Channel 4. Since then, he's been responsible for a host of prominent docs, including Me and My Mum and Kidnapped by the Kids and many more, and formats including The Baby Borrowers, Famous Rich and Homeless, Britain's Missing Top Model, Young Mum's Mansion, Filthy Rich and Homeless, Tower Block of Commons, Make Bradford British, Benefit Street, and of course, The Greats, Great British Bake Off, Pottery Throwdown and British Sewing Bee, and most recently, The Piano. Welcome to the show, Richard. Um, Thanks for having me, Justin David. So we'll talk about some or hopefully all of those as we go through the show. Meanwhile, so Richard, you began your career as a print journalist and then a documentary maker. Would you say that's where your sense of purpose in storytelling comes from? I mean, I suppose I always wanted to be... uh... A journalist. I started off at The Nation magazine in New York and got to work with people like Alexander Coburn and Christopher Hitchens and Noam Chomsky, Edward Said, some of the sort of progressive greats, if you like. Mm. I felt very, very fortunate, but I also learned we used to fact check every single article. So as an intern, you'd get given the galleys of the article and there'd be these parentheses around them. And literally, so you know pretty much that every article in The Nation magazine going back to 1865 has been chatting. I suppose that taught me the importance of, I mean, truth as far as there is any truth, but the importance of paying attention to facts and that kind of journalistic integrity, which I think lies at the heart of documentary filmmaking at its best. And what I sort of talk about as being the documentary sensibility. If I'd been able to get a green card, I probably would have stayed in print, but unfortunately I couldn't. So after two years in the States, I had to come back to Britain and, um, I, uh, I happened to see a documentary called Four Hours at Me Live, which won an Emmy. It was made by Kevin Sim, and it was just mind-blowingly good. And I thought, gosh, that's what I want to do. And I've often looked back and thought, 
I mean, listen, I think print journalists and journalists are fantastic. But often you can write 20 articles and nothing changes, whereas what shocks me about television is you can make one film, and in fact the first documentary I ever worked on changed legislation. And which documentary was that? The first one I worked on was something called Tobacco Wars, and it was about the tobacco industry and how, as the first world began to quit cigarettes, the um, leading tobacco companies with the support of the British American government targeted third world countries and basically started to export highly addictive drugs, cigarettes, nicotine to those countries and demanded advertising freedoms, which you would never get here and threatened trade sanctions if they weren't granted. But I suppose looking back now, what was very interesting about it is that they asked me to find someone who had advertised cigarettes once upon a time and was now dying of cancer. So already then, even though it was a serious film and a foreign affairs they were looking for an entertainment frame, mm. therefore a sort of story that had a kind of sensationalism about it that would bring in viewers. So already you're starting to see the turn towards interest in what we now call ratings, which is now <laughs> what we all live and die by. Yeah. Um, when I look back, that sort of entertainment frame, as you call it, you know, is a way of bringing in viewers to a subject that might not normally get viewers. And it is something that I've learned to deploy in my work and actually be quite defensive of because it's no different from, you know, if you've got a shop, you know, you want the shop window to attract people to come in. Mm. What needs to be judged is the content of what is in your shop when the person comes in. So you became a commissioning editor at Channel 4 in 1997, when it was still very much a publisher broadcaster. Do you think you were able to put factual content into an entertainment frame there? I was responsible for the health programs, and um, I uh, we pitched a lot of the, you know, the health series that had been given to me. And Michael Jackson didn't look at all interested, and then he just suddenly turned around and said, "Why don't we do a series called Embarrassing Illnesses?" And everyone <laughs> went, "Oh my God, that's a good idea!" And it was just a title. And I remember once telling this story and getting a call from broadcast saying. Well, we hear you just commission off the back of a title. <laughs> and I said, well, but it can start with a title. <laughs> There's quite a long process after that to go before you commission. But, I mean, it, it is important, that kind of, as I was saying, the kind of entertainment frame. I mean, looking at your career, it seemed to me that you you often kind of tread this line between two sides of things or two even two opposites. So, I mean, you've got, as you say in that example, factual and entertainment you look at family and then fractured relationships, noise and outrage, unscripted and format. So I thought as we go along, we might look at some of those contrasts and how they've played out in the shows that you've made. I mean, firstly, I suppose I think I got into television to change the world, to try and make the world better. And I sort of <laughs> think, I mean, I have a fundamental optimistic belief that every individual wants to make the world better, you know, yeah. in whatever way. But I just happen to have chose television. And so I'm interested in the, what you call the factual side. But you see, I don't divide it. I know it frustrates me, but everyone wants to talk about factual, entertainment, features, reality shows, documentaries. And I actually think, well, first of all, it should be factual and scripted. The Americans mm. have it much better, scripted and unscripted. Those are the two categories. So a very good example is when I was at Channel 4, at that time, ratings were suddenly the big thing. But I had the education brief, as I was saying, which was just to satisfy the PSB mm. quota. But Karen Brown said to me, it'd be great if you could get it to rate as well. So anyway, I remember we did this season called Blindness, about blindness. 
And we did a documentary series based in Moorfields Eye Hospital called Blinded. And we did a format called Celebrity Blind Man's Buck. <laughs> now, the Blinded series in Moorfields Eye Hospital was fantastic, terrific, exec by Peter Moore, made by Mark Halliday. I mean, one of the most powerful pieces of documentary television, I think 2020 did it. Celebrity Blind Man's Buff was also actually very good. It was made with a lot of the blind societies, the RNIB. We took three celebrities. They went from Edinburgh. They had to replicate blindness with glasses, and they came down to London. And it was also very, very good um, and powerful. And when the shows went out, Blinded did 800,000, and Celebrity Blind Man's Buff did 2.5 million. <laughs> now, what that told me was that people who wouldn't normally watch a program on blindness were being brought to an important subject because it had this entertainment frame. Now, as I started to realize that, that that was a way of bringing in viewers who wouldn't normally care about the subject and bringing in viewers, that obviously made me sit up and pay attention as we're doing it. And funnily enough, you know, a lot of my old former friends and colleagues, serious documentary makers, as their, as their documentaries were being pushed out to 11 o'clock at night, you know, would get all up in all uppity and start saying documentaries are superior form to, and I'm not going to use the term reality because reality is actually a misnomer. We're talking about unreality. So I use constructed doc. And actually what I started to realize, if you get into the, if you want to have the argument documentary versus constructed doc, actually, I would say constructed doc is more ethically true because observational documentary says what you're watching is true. None of it's true. It's all edited. Mm. It's a director's truth. Constructed documentary actually says, I mean, to be deconstructive about it, it says this is just the frame. None of it within this is true. And that's slightly my theory on actually why younger audiences have gone for things like Made in Chelsea. I mean, certain television producers love to say, oh, Made in Chelsea. It's sort of, but actually, it was a really sophisticated and clever way of playing with truth. I mean, at the end of the day, once you bring a camera in, you've just changed the world. So what you then do with that world and how you then present that world um, is, for me, incredibly fascinating and interesting. And I'm always keen to see new groundbreaking ways of making factual television because it's, it's fun and it's invigorating. And it's the only way that it's going to keep it alive if we do things that haven't been done before. So let's look at a controversial example, Filthy Rich and Homeless. Uh, for listeners, that was a format where five wealthy people with different opinions about homelessness were challenged to spend 10 days sleeping rough on the streets. I wanted to tackle homelessness. Originally, I'd love to have done it as a single hour documentary, a 90 minute feature documentary, and there have been some amazing ones made about the subject matter. But, you know, in the kind of mid 2000s, it was hard to get homelessness in nine o'clock. Mm, yeah. And that's why we came up with this idea to do Filthy Rich and Homeless, which was actually based upon something that was happening in the real world in America where they were doing urban plunges. This woman working uh, on a campus was giving students the opportunity to know what it was like to be homeless for 24 hours. Right. And then we blew it up into a Filthy Rich and Homeless. And again, hopefully, I suppose we were trying to bring viewers who wouldn't normally watch a homeless 
documentary to to an important subject the key thing that i find from your 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 output is is the range the sheer range of it from like a a fairly hard-hitting thing like benefit street all the way up to cirque du celebrity (laughs) but not just in terms of the tone the subject matter but also the fact that the, the formatting is very different you're absolutely right i think that you know it's really difficult because you get stereotyped as a production company you know, once you show that you are good at a certain thing, then the broadcasters come to you for that type of program. And we've always, I mean, I've always really hated that. You know, I just like good ideas wherever they come from in the factual space. And so, you you know, Cirque de Celebrity, I mean, I just remember we had the idea, light bulb moment, Celebrity Circus, thought, bloody hell, this is really good. You know, no one's done it before. Pitched it at Channel 5. They weren't interested, you know, and, and we just got lucky that Richard Wolfe had just arrived at Sky. And, and I think, you know, it's like anything in television, it's sort of, you, you do need a bit of luck. <laughs> when you have a flashbulb moment, you have the idea, you better sell it quick because someone's going to have the same idea within a few weeks. So, and sure enough, Richard called me up and I think he said, oh, we've now got three Celebrity Circuses ideas, but yours came in first and I want to work with you. And I think the truth is he wanted to work with us because we were a small production company he could squeeze us on the budget and he could march around and be the showman um no disrespect <laughs> to him because he was a wonderful guy and he was a brilliant guy to be producing the show for but you know that was the sort of luck we had but i suppose from my point of view i don't want to be stereotyped and i want us to be always doing something that's never been done before i, I mean it's so interesting the kind of stereotyping because it even happens in the reaction of the press to the program. So, for example, the media storm around Benefit Street. So that was the series you filmed in a street in Birmingham where the majority of residents depended on benefits. If you look at, if you look at all the coverage, it was called a reality show. It was an observational documentary series. We spent a year there. <laughs> mm. But they decided, because we made constructed docs or realities, it's love productions, they've done Baby Borrowers, where the first controversy happens. It's a reality show. No, it wasn't. It was, an, it, was, it was actually our first observational documentary series. But, you know, even now, obviously, you know, it's been great doing the Great British Bake Off and doing pottery and sewing bee. But you get, you know, there's a danger that the, you'll then be the company that has to deliver that competition, you know, and... and and making the piano, for example. I, I mean, I love doing things which people think aren't going to rate. I mean, that does come from Bake Off. <laughs> everyone said it'd be like watching paint dry and they didn't buy it for five years. And, you know, similarly with the piano. Yes, yeah, so let's talk about the piano. This is that Channel 4 show where regular people play one of those pianos you see in railway stations, um, unaware they're being observed by two famous musicians. So that was a hard sell. When I first talked about it with Ian Katz, it was kind of like, it's not really going to rate. How do you make a piano rate in primetime television? But that challenge is very appealing to me. But what I was going to say is that when we made the series, we also, re- in, the middle, in the midst of producing it, we wanted it to be distinct and new and different because television's tricky because you want to borrow the things that work. But you also, if we're going to keep getting viewers and keep getting a a young audience, you need to be making something that hasn't been used before and isn't repetitive. So, you know, with the piano, we work very hard to make it not a competition, even though it sort of is a competition. But even in the use of the language, I mean, even at the end, um, you know, when Lucy receives performance of the night, she isn't crowned a winner. She is one of four people who get a piano. 
I thought it was very, very nice the way that it was almost done as like, well, we've brought you here together and you've done a lovely performance. But by the way, we're going to bring you all to this thing at the at, at the Royal Festival Hall. We're also going to pick out one person just to help us with that <laughs> with that concert. Everybody's special. One person's perhaps a bit more special, but everybody's a winner in, in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think everyone should be a winner because, you know, I have a fundamental belief that the people who are brave enough to be in factual television to actually put themselves in front of the camera, it's our responsibility to look after them and ensure. I mean, I talked that thing about... When you introduce a camera, you change the world. The other thing we're really big on at Love Productions is you've got to leave it better than you found it. And that's the people who are in it. And also you as a producer. I mean, I don't think you should do a program unless you are open to learning from it and moving on. And, you know, we've been talking about some of the work I've done. Each each of the shows has informed the next one. <laughs> when I look back to the first documentary I ever made called Miss Popular's Crack City, which was about two prostitutes who were addicted to crack cocaine and there was a moment in that film where I just forgot the camera was there I was interviewing one of the women and I just was like if you carry on like this Karen if you carry on on the night you know taking crack it's never gonna change and that was when we got the most powerful moment and you know years later mm. you know I always trying to say to people in an interview situation try and forget the cameras there because if if you're, you know, if you don't forget the cameras there, they're never going to forget the cameras there. So just have a conversation with the. Um, so I'm really, I'm really interested in the way the camera operates as a sort of confessional thing, and I, and a fundamental belief that here in Britain, where we supposedly we're all stiff upper lip and we don't want to talk, we actually really want to talk. Mm. So we have to be, as producers, we have to be brave enough to ask the question that's in your head that you think they might not want to be asked, but actually they do want to be asked. One of the themes that, um, again, or a thread, I suppose, that I, I noticed in your output was uh, family. Mm. Um, family and, and when families don't work as well. I mean, you've got things like me and my mum with Tony Robinson and his mum with Alzheimer's. You've got kidnapped by the kids, the baby borrowers that you've mentioned, and uh, controversially boys and girls alone where eight to 11-year-olds were, were put into two houses and left alone to, to cope and to see what they do. I mean, it was interesting. I made a, a, a series once called um, Bollywood Star. Uh, it was when I just left Channel 4 and was at Maverick. And on a sort of superficial level, it was a competition to find a British Asian who gets a role in a Bollywood movie. We invited all these... British Asians, I think, to the NEC to do a dance and act in front of four British judges. <laughs> and they got whittled down to six people who were then sent to Mumbai. On one level, it was about um, British Asians, you know, sort of, well, at one level, it was a Bollywood competition. But another level, it was about British Asians having notions of the homeland, the motherland in their hand, and then going there and discovering that they missed Britain. Um, but on a deeper level, it was actually about these individual relationships with their parents. The woman who ended up winning had wanted to do this series because her mother, who had been a uh, bank manager in Barclays, I think, uh, had always dreamed of being a Bollywood star. Right. And she, Rupak, had found her mother one day after she had killed herself. So... It was deeply, deeply embedded in it. And what we realized making that series, I think that's where we learned the expression, it's all about loving your parents. 
And actually, I remember talking to Mahesh Bhatt, who was the Bollywood producer who gave us the role in one of his movies, and he said that's all that Bollywood is about as well. And I am interested in family in the sense that also, you know, often say, you know, look, we are all, you know, I mean, all the debate about diversity and neurodiversity, at the end of the day, we're all brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons and daughters. And that's a really fundamentally important thing. And to be curious about the people within our programs is really vital. And it starts with their childhood. It starts with their relationship with their parents. You know, in Bake Off, a lot of people started baking because of some relationship with a member of their family. Or even the act of baking, you know, is something that is you do it for yourself, but in the act of doing it, you 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 are giving out cake to the community, to the family, to a children's birthday. That's the thing when I retrospectively look at baking, sewing, potting, and the piano. I mean, the act of piano, you can play a piano and you can give it, you're doing it for yourself, playing this incredibly hard instrument. And the act of doing it, you're giving it to 100,000 people. But often the reason that you started playing the piano will be to do with something that happened in your family life or a relationship that you had with somebody. Mm. So, Justin, I have been re-energised by some things I've been seeing on television recently, because there's been some excellent things. And it's always nice to talk about good things. So one thing that caught my eye recently was riffing off what we said in previous episode about stunts, about multi-channel stunts. Well, this was more of a live show stunt. So there are a couple of comedians in Germany called Joko and Klaas, and they've done a number of shows for the channel Pro Sieben. They worked out some sort of clever promotional scheme. They got a uh, sponsor to put up a prize of 1 million euros. And they put this in a suitcase and they said, we've hidden this suitcase somewhere in Germany and we're going to give you various clues to find out the exact location sort of the latitude, the longitude of where this case is, and also the code you need to unlock the case. And over the next week, we uh, are going to release day by day various weird videos, and it's sort of the answer to the puzzles in these weird videos Mm. are numbers, and we'll, we'll tell you where to put the numbers into the location, and so eventually you can work out where this thing is. One really nice fillip of this was that in order to release the code for the case, they said, we're going to ask, I think it was something like 20,000 Germans to register for bone marrow donations. Then we'll release the the code the winner will need to open the case. They absolutely smashed that target. (laughs) So that was sort of a nice sort of like charity aspect that they put on top of this. But on the final day, enough information would have been released that the the full location was workoutable. Uh, but they just didn't know exactly when people would find it. Because <laughs> obviously, ooh. even if they knew the location, somebody would have to get there somehow. So they were in the middle of their own show, which was sort of partly pre-recorded. But they had a shot in the bottom left corner of the suitcase or the briefcase, with the money. And it, that was lo- going on live at all the time. And they said, if anybody seems like they're sort of creeping up on, this, on the case, 
we're going to cut to it live and we're going to stop our own show. <laughs> so, so this is the really neat I'm thing gripped, about I'm gripped this. already. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what happens is, <laughs> what they've cleverly done is they've hidden the case inside a van so that that's, that was where it was. So somebody opened the back door of the van. The lights of the van turn on from the inside. One of the comedians is in there with the, with the suitcase the guy's looking a bit startled and he goes, are you here to open the suitcase? And he sort of kind of goes, yeah, uh, yeah, I am. He said, come in, come in, come in. So then he sort of settles him down mm-hmm. and like, so they completely stopped the other show now. They're now completely live, going out live on German television. And the guy opens, yeah, so enters the, the numbers on the briefcase and he, he tries it. It doesn't open. Oh. <laughs> and everyone's going like, oh no, what's, go- <laughs> what's happened? <laughs> and so so he just says, okay, we're going to calm you down, all right? Just have another go, enter the numbers, enters the number this time, case opens, the comedian sets off a big set of streamers going off in the van, and this guy has won million euros live wow. on German wow. television. Right. Now, this is the really smart thing, because Ooh. Class's chat show goes out after this pre-recorded quiz show finishes Mm -hmm. and they've made it so that this van was parked about an hour out of the berlin studio where class's chat show is yeah they drive the van up (laughs) the motorway up the autostrasse you're now wanting to see this guy arrive at the chat show studio to sort of you know to have a debrief mm, mm, and mm. unfortunately the contestant was a little bit monot- monosyllabic and a bit shell-shocked it didn't say very much but they ex- during the, the chat show they explained all the, how all the puzzles worked what the, all the answers were yeah. and kind of did a, a debrief to the audience I just thought it was brilliantly well run because a lot of these type of treasure hunt stunts have been done before in book format and people have tried to do it in the internet sometimes or on tv and they either are either cracked too early cracked too late don't have a satisfying ending and they can't withstand the blob of the internet anymore because the people on twitch trying to solve these puzzles live so you've got like hundreds of people swapping ideas instantly to crack all these puzzles gosh so what was the what was the name of the original searching for the golden rabbit so that was a book in the 1970s called Masquerade. Masquerade, and, that's By it, yeah. Kit Williams. Mm, uh, mm. Yeah. Because that's whenever this has come up, you know, and as you say, it comes up periodically. I don't know how many development meetings I've sat in or where I've had people come to me with a show and it's, oh, we're, you know, we're going to do Masquerade. And Masquerade itself was of its time, but also very difficult and also very difficult to control but at least it wasn't on tv and at least it didn't have the internet so that's extraordinary i mean to pull all of that off all of those elements together and do it live and trust the public you know and i mean there's always there's always a faction that's working against you these days you know that's trying to sort of subvert it or or whatever but the puzzles are pretty original like they start off nice and easy with like one comedian would hold up a bagel and the other one would hold up a breadstick. Mm. And you'd sort of go, oh, I get it. The bagel is a zero and the breadstick's a one. And then whoever talks, it's it's binary numbers, right? So you... <laughs> you say pretty obvious. That's, not, that's obvious to a mathematician. Yeah. It's not um, obvious to me. Uh, I, my, my brain went somewhere <laughs> else completely doing that. So, yeah, and then okay. the, hard, the hardest puzzle that they cracked was you had to find a, a particular large format photograph on Wikipedia of a famous German figure and then 
find a particular pixel on that photograph and then take the blue component value of that pixel in Photoshop and those were the digits you needed. <laughs> wow. So that was sort of like, you know, that was like puzzle six out of seven. It was like really quite tricky. Oh. But yeah, these these treasure hunts things, they, they are there's something that comes up in TV development. I remember one which, which involved burying a car as well. Do you remember that? Where there were just hubcaps on the, uh, there was a hub, hubcaps on the ground. Yes. And they buried a Mercedes or something. Yeah, that, I think that was the Texaco Garage Company. I think mm. gen, genuine, genuinely they buried hubcaps somewhere around the country. And if you found one of them, then you would you could trade it in for a, a car. I'm just looking up. It says say that Texaco did bury um, sports cars around the country. Right. Well, I, um, I suppose the way parking's going these days, that's the only way to, to put it somewhere. <laughs> so anyway, I, I just thought that was riffing off what we were saying last time about stunts. Yeah. It was just nice to see a really well thought through stunt that was absolutely compelling television. And the way it enhanced the brand of the both the presenters and the channel mm. and, mm. and the sponsor and the charity. Yeah. Mm. Mm. A great example of... of television still being able to do stuff the internet can't yeah 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 absolutely and that's the that's the golden ticket these days isn't it well we might be talking a little bit more about that in a moment and now it's time to return to our chat with love productions richard mccarrow You said that uh, Bake Off took five Mm. years to get commissioned. What kept you going? That's a long commitment. When I hear these stories of, let's say, a producer has spent seven years of their life to get a one-off documentary onto television, compared to like a YouTuber these days who can probably just say to themselves, I'm going to make this tomorrow. What makes you think, actually, God, this television world, it's, it's so difficult. Why do I even bother spending years of my life getting stuff commissioned? First off, I mean, I have to own up and say, it ain't that hard. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, the best ideas actually are really simple and they're really obvious. The great thing about working in television is it's the complication of making it with all the kind of the layers of music and voice recording and everything else. But the actual idea, you know, has got to be able to sit in the listings. So decent title, four or five, you know. And to be honest, that's what Bake Off was. The original thing was, oh my God, no one's done an amateur baking show and yet everyone bakes. Bake Off's happened at country fairs around the country. But it was interesting, in the act of pitching it, you found out why no one had commissioned it because they all thought it'd be like watching paint dry. And that's what's really interesting is the fact that when I look back, all the reasons for not commissioning it are kind of the reasons it felt original and distinct and fresh. Baking is slow, it's not fast. The characters aren't loud they tend to be just nice, normal people. You know, so all the things that people were looking for in television weren't in Bake Off. But actually, what was there when you put it all together was, I think, a kind of deeper, more profound drama than, say, cooking. I mean, I'm saying this just for the sake of argument, because obviously you can have fantastic, brilliant, and highly successful cooking shows. But what I mean is that, you know, with cooking, if it goes wrong, you add a bit of salt and pepper, or you change a bit of thing. It's kind of like that. Whereas baking... <laughs> three hours in the oven if you've got it wrong it's going to be and that's why it's so dramatic they all lean down and look through the oven like they're praying and also actually i think it also adds to that sense of they're not in competition with the other bakers because they're so in competition 
with the oven, if you like, or you know, it's they then want to help mm, other bakers. Mm. But I, I'm not sure I answered your question, which was to say why we kept on pitching it. I suppose because I've always had a philosophy that you know there are you have five ten ideas that you love and you believe in, and we went to see Danny Cohen at BBC Three, Anna and I, um, and he went, "Come on, what are your top ten ideas?" And, um, you know, we said, well, it's not BBC Three at all, but, you know, the Great British Bake Off, we've been pitching it for four or five years. And he said, you know what, it is a good idea. Send me in the treatment and I'll walk it over to Janice. And that was the beginning of it. Wow. So I want to pick up on that theme because that was BBC Two that you started off on. And then obviously you went to BBC One and then you did the transfer to Channel Four. Obviously, BBC Two has slightly reduced its commissioning, especially in daytime. But that seems to maybe have cut off some of the blood flow to nurture to incubate shows that can graduate to mm-hmm. to bbc one do you feel it was beneficial that you were less exposed yeah on bbc two definitely i mean the first series of bake-off you know the first episode anna and i i think were on holiday in devon and the ratings came through and you know for us it was a big show we'd never really had a returning series baby borrows had come back but it always the bbc three series tended to have to have a twist to them mm. So we were hopeful about Bake Off. I think after, apart from Britain's Missing Top Model, it was our first competition series. Um, and I think the ratings came in and they were like 1.9 million on BBC Two, which was pretty good, but not amazing. But Anna said, don't worry, because it started at 1.8 and went to 2.1 during the hour. And effectively, that story then just traveled because the net it just by the end of the series i can't remember the exact figures but it was like about 2.8 2.9 you know but then there was a conversation about the second series of the bbc because they said yes they wanted to do it again but we needed to slash the budget mm. um, we needed to take about a quarter out of the budget which is why the first series of bake-off moved around we took the tent to six different locations from scotland to cornwall you know and it's funny because you know, I remember I was going, we can't, we can't, the, the only way to get the budget to where they wanted it to was to leave the tent in one place. And I was going, you're making a terrible mistake here. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd been to, you know, policy review things where Britain, you know, had said, we love to see different parts of Britain around and on the BBC. But, you know, just proves, what did I know? It didn't damage it at all staying in one place. <laughs> You've touched on this, um, again, this contrast between competition and camaraderie, I suppose, where, uh, as you said, the the contestants in Bake Off are competing against the oven rather than against each other. And again, that's very contrary to what we expect from reality shows and what we're asked as, as producers to create. You know, we're always being asked to create conflict. How do you set out to achieve that that mix? Well, just I refuse to make conflict. Right. You know, that, you know, I just, I'm not interested in conflict. Um, I'm interested in drama. Hmm. I'm a documentary maker because I think, as Martin Amis said, the best novel is the history of the world. It can't, you know, you, you don't, we don't know what's going to happen. We can't predict it. I mean, I can remember when Wife Swap first appeared and everyone got very excited and the term car crash TV was created. And I suppose I like to think that if we have the crash of drama within our shows, I always called it soul crash, that that's much more important, you know, that that you get drama certainly by placing people in challenging circumstances, like a tent, (laughs) and having to make a showstopper, that's challenging. (laughs) 
but that it goes back to a deep fundamental respect for the contributors who have been brave enough. I think contributor care is a really important, and for me, it's part of the documentary sensibility and part of the ethics of making factual programs. We have a responsibility to look after those people. So to put them in conflictual situations for the sake of conflict is, for me, crossing a line that we try not to. I'm sure we've probably screwed up on lots of occasions, but you know that's what we try not to do. You've been quoted saying that you try and do something that's never been done before. And yet I'm sure there are many development executives who are in a, a, a cubicle right now trying to think of something going, everything's been done before. There's surely nothing new. Isn't it nearly impossible these days? I do think it's incredibly hard to come up with brand new original ideas. Absolutely. And no idea is truly wholly original. You know, when you put people like a poor development team, I guess it's why we call it development hell, in a room and say, come up with an idea, that is the sure way that no one's going to come up with an idea. <laughs> the thing that you have to do is you just have to be constantly open to them coming from the most unusual directions. So, for example, when you work in TV and someone pitches you an idea who doesn't work in TV, your heart sinks, doesn't it? You think, bloody hell, is that what my job's worth that, you know? doing this for 30 years but anyone can come up with a television idea and of course of course they can because television belongs to anybody everybody and none of us sat degrees like or did training like surgeons and architects and everything else but there's only there's one thing that's worse than that and that's when a member of your family calls you up and goes, dad dad i've got a really good telly idea and she said it and i was like oh shit has that not been done before that's quite a good idea and sure enough, that night, I mentioned it to Ian Katz. He's, he had the same reaction. And now we're making it. You just don't know where it's going to come from. They come at all times of days and night. And you, know, and you just have to be open. And I also think you've got to be prepared to, you know, when someone says to me, oh, what's the next big idea? And I say, well, if I had it, you're definitely not going to commission it because that's the story of Bake Off. And so you've got to sort of, when everyone's turning right, you've got to figure out how, what, how do you turn left. Mm. Um, Mm. which is which is hard and you know and has that show been announced yet or is that under wrap still i think it hasn't really quite been announced uh, but right. it's it's we, we've filmed it so we're in the edit so. cool and what was the origin of the piano then the origin of the piano was a conversation with ian katz i had just started learning the piano which is phenomenally hard and the older you are the harder it is <laughs> Ian was having lessons, and he said to me, you know, have you seen those public pianos that are in train stations? I said, yeah, no, aren't they great? And he said, you know, do you think there's anything in it? And I said, Desert Island Discs on television. And I said, well, I'd love to try. I don't know if there's anything in it, but we'll, we'll, we'll go and have a bash. And we did a 20-minute taster. We just kind of went and filmed whoever turned up at Tottenham Court Road. And, I mean, to be honest, we looked at it, and there were some great moments in it, but... It, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, it would have been a one-off documentary late night. Yeah. Because some of the characters were really wonderful, but they were kind of a bit obscure. You did see the way the public, though, reacted to walking past. You know, people would suddenly start dancing or hug their partner. or There were some lovely bits in it. Hmm. But I thought, well, how can we make it bigger? Is there a kind of way of you know, making a bigger series. And so can't come on, do a competition. So, no, the first thing I thought was we're going to have to cast in. We can't just rely upon who turns up at the public piano. And wouldn't it be great if we found amateur pianists, you know, and again, it's again, the broadness of it, because even more broader than 
Bake Off, you can have a six-year-old and you can have a 95-year-old mm. in the piano because mm. they're only going to be there for one song. So that was the kind of casting in. And then was, the, I suppose, a light bulb moment was the thought of could we have, we don't call them judges, but observers, judges, who they didn't know were there. Mm. And I thought, oh, God, that excites me because I thought, is there a competition whether you don't know you're in a competition? So that got the kind of little bits of naughty, mischievous going. And it helped, to be honest, obviously sell the program. Mm. And the irony is when we were making the first series, everyone said, well, how are you going to make a second series? And I was like, well, I don't care. Don't worry. Just concentrate on making the first one good. And, you know, now we're doing the second series. Of course, the big thing is, well, what are you doing about the secret? Why is there, you know, it's not going to be a secret anymore. And I suppose during the making of it, we actually scaled down the secret because the contributors that we found didn't want to be in an X Factor show. There were a lot of them that were quite vulnerable. So I became very, very worried about this surprise at the end. Mm. So working it with the casting team, we softened it. We said, look, tell them there's a surprise coming. Don't tell them what it is, but tell them it's nice. And actually, I think, and look, I may be completely wrong about this, and the second series will come out and no one will watch it because there's no surprise. But what I hope is that actually people were watching for the pianists and the songs they were playing and Mika and Lang Lang's chemistry and the amazing relationship with Claudia and, you know, that the, the, the secret, as they won't matter. Yeah. Um, and that that was actually just a useful television conceit to help it get <laughs> across the line. And, you know, it has to be said, I think the producing of it, we talked earlier about it, a lot of the decisions are made in conversation with Claudia, Lang Lang and Mika and the team and us all sharing it and making it up as we go along. And that's the thing about factual television programming. I think you really mustn't take the real world and shove it into your idea. You take the idea to the real world and then you respond to what is happening. Mm. I would say you produce by not producing. It's a, it's a thing you feel and you work it out as a team and you, you listen to what, you know, because Claudia's got some of the best ideas on the piano. And, you know, if you say, oh, what about that? And Mika, that's a good idea. Or he'll go, no, I'm not doing that. You're trying to create a real world that would happen even if there were no cameras there. Mm. The importance of letting the judges own the bake-off. I mean, in the first series, there was a moment where I got a call and they said, Paul and Mary couldn't decide. Uh, they want us to decide. And I thought for a minute and I just thought, hold on, they're the judges. I said, lock them in a room, <laughs> tell them they have to decide. And I think that was, a, that was a moment, an important moment of discovery. That's what I mean about producing by not producing. Mm. And I know you've got a theory about numbers of judges as well. <laughs> that's a by the way everything is a joke i always think all these theories and rules they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, no, they're just there to be shot down contradicted broken there are no truths <laughs> um, but i quite like just throwing out funny ways of doing it no the theory is that i think on bake off the professionals we once had three judges and it didn't work and i suddenly realized that two is really good because if you've got two people they share i mean you know mary berry chose Paul Hollywood in many respects. We chose Mary because she was just amazing and the camera loved her and she was a slam dunk. Then we tried her with different people and it was with Paul that she got on with. And what you realize there is because they both, they're slightly different. Mary believed that the best cake could be made at home and Paul thought the best cake needed to be able to be served up in the Ritz. So they had that kind of thing. Paul was a bread maker. Mary respected that a lot. But yeah, the relationship was a two. And uh, the thing about threes 
is that threes, somebody's trying to compete or get their word in. It's just less authentic. They're not doing it for the cause of the show. And then, so the joke is, you know, that obviously you don't marry two other people. You don't play tennis as a three. You know, the animals went in two by two. So that's just kind of my, <laughs> my joke about it. So you'll be back later for show and tell. But uh, for now, Richard, uh, thanks very much indeed for joining us on TV Show and Tell. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed it. So another show that's launched recently, this time on Amazon, is Road to a Million. 007 Road to a Million, to give it its full title, because it's a linked to the James Bond franchise. Have you been watching that, Justin? I have been watching it, yes. We're on episode four, I think, or episode five. So, yeah, enjoying it very much. It's it's an interesting one with in the sense that you've got nine couples, but they're all playing separately. They're not, They're playing against the controller rather than against each other which did kind of beg a question really because if they're playing for a million and they're not playing against each other then presumably it's possible for each of them to win a million which means that presumably they started off with the proposition <laughs> that they could give away nine million uh, at the beginning nine million dollars i assume i um, know uh, these uh, are british I'm so sorry. Um, his majesty's pounds i have you know <laughs> yeah well uh, i'm so sorry i'm so sorry yes okay so yeah very very british british pound sterlings so that's even more you know so how does that work then because i know you worked on the show so how, how how does that work how do you avoid doing that yeah well it's the old dilemma of you want people to win but you don't want to bankrupt the production yeah, uh, and and from that point of view, it's no different to any other show I've, I've worked on. But yes, because in theory they are nine separate games, although they're edited together slightly interleaved, they could theoretically all win a million pounds each. Right. So when I'm tasked with crunching the numbers on a show like this, what do we do? Well, mm. there's there's a number of techniques. I mean, I'll go through like two or three of them in detail. Uh, one okay. of the simplest ones really is to say, well, look, if we've got an end game and we want people to win 80% of the time, we want them to win the big holiday 80% of the time, what do we need to do to get them to answer five out of six questions in order to win the holiday? And if you're not sure how to do the maths or something like that, the simplest thing really is to just roll some dice. <laughs> or draw lots or something and say well look if if the questions are pitched at this level that people get them right eight eight times out of ten if you ask people six of those questions what average score will they get and Mm. if you just do that enough times like a few handfuls of times you'll get a reasonable estimate on on what that involves and then you can say well oh that's not enough winners we need to make the questions easier or harder or give Mm. them more give them more options or not require them to have five out of six it could just be four out of six there's plenty of levers you can pull but that's that's one of the most basic approaches you can do yeah okay um then you've got if you're really good at maths you can do something called markov chains which is basically the a way of sort of saying well like we've got to this position and this is the probability of how something is going to happen in the future and then regardless of how you do it you can then chain that calculation together several times and cleverly works out the probability of the whole game for you but that's they're pretty advanced and i wouldn't recommend people touching those i don't really understand them particularly well myself the more interesting one and the one that is used a lot 
if you're really dealing with millions of pounds. It's something called a Monte Carlo analysis. And effectively, it's really just getting the computer to play the game for you, but many, many, many times. Rather than trying to work out precisely uh, using probability and formulae that the game will give out 106,932.54 pounds on average per game, you don't really need to know precisely down to the penny the value of the game is worth. You just need to know approximately 10,000, 100,000 or a million pounds we're going to give away here within a certain margin of error. So if you just get the computer to play the game, say, 10,000 times, uh, then it will give you a reasonable estimate. And that reasonable estimate is all you need to actually work out the the cost to you, the producer. So how do you do a Monte Carlo simulation then? The two main ways are you could just program a computer to effectively step through the game as if you were a contestant. And sometimes that might be just a case of, well, I spin a wheel, the wheel stops at this and I get this result. So if you've got lifelines or moments of strategy, then you just have to get the computer to do a reasonable estimation of of how a a human would use those in reality but if you don't want to do programming or you can't do it you can just knock up a version of it just in the spreadsheet so so if you just do like let's say ten thousand rows of the spreadsheet and you use the columns of the spreadsheet for the different stages of the game and then say well for each of these rows how many times did the player win and add up all the wins down the 10,000 columns or the amounts that they won, then you can kind of do it that way. And then presumably there's a there's a human element to it as well because there's what contestants will actually do as when they're kind of their emotional response to things. Yeah, well, famously, I'm going to put my one pound in the millionaire swear jar here, but have to use it, unfortunately, which is that, of course, the there's a difference between what is theoretically the correct thing to do and what is actually the human thing to do so for example the value of money is a big element here to use a ridiculous example supposing you had a million pounds and then you were given a multiple choice question that had four options one of which is correct and if you get it right you get 10 million pounds but if you get it wrong you lose everything now in theory the hard-headed thing to do is to just take that gamble every time because you're, you're getting the odds to go for the 10 million. However, the human thing to do, probably for most people, may be to say, well, happy with my million. And even though I'm getting good odds to go to the 10 million, don't want to lose the million because the million would set me up for life pretty yeah. much. So. so you've got to use a thing called the value of money in your calculations. It's not just about pure pounds and dollars. It's also about what, so basically how many life points yeah. that money is worth to somebody, <clears throat> which is why the, the jumps in millionaire have to be so big, because you have to offer so much more in order to make it worth mm. people gambling. So I've, I've heard that called the happiness curve. Is that correct? I can believe it. Mm. Uh, the happiness curve is basically that if you have on the one on one side of it, how much you'd give away and on the other side of it, at which point you'd be happy with the outcome. That in theory, the more you can win, the higher your happiness goes up. But the reality is that the curve flattens out. Um, 
Because as you say, the difference between 10,000 and 100,000 is whatever. For offer you 200,000, it's not, you're not twice as excited about it. And the way that it breaks down on something like deal or no deal or whatever, when you're being offered a choice is if it's, if it's a choice between the million or zero, what would I offer you to walk away? And on a straight graph, that would be half the money. Mm. But actually, if you ask most people, it's around about 200, 250,000 where they would say, you know what, I would take that and walk away. Yeah, there's there's no set figure. It's just a guideline. When yeah. they're doing the offers on deal and no deal, the exact um, correct deal doesn't really exist. It all depends on the player's psychology, and yeah. whether they're a risk taker or, or not. Yeah. I think the technical term for this is utility. Right. So it's like how useful is is that money to or the resource that you're offering people, well, whether it's money or Kit Kats or whatever. Now the interesting thing about Road to Million, I can't go too much into the details of it, but I'll give a glimpse behind the scenes of it, which was that there are up to ten levels, but each level's kind of in two parts because there's the physical task, and then there's the question <clears throat> or sometimes a, a skill task. Uh, as well so really they had to jump through up to 20 hurdles to win the million Uh, and it's possible i'm not going to ruin it for anybody but it's possible for you to fail on either half people tended to fail more on the on the question because that was kind of designed but like if if the stunt if they just didn't want to go with through this with the stunt and they wanted to chicken out or they, they couldn't meet the deadline that sometimes is imposed, then they could absolutely fail on that. So what's interesting about that is that even if it made all of these things really easy so that you had like a 90% chance of, of, of succeeding, hmm. the first question and the first task and the second task, second question, so on, so on, so on, so on. The 90%, when you multiply it together 20 times, <laughs> starts to get a little bit hairy as a, as a figure. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to work it out now. Because I can't remember, but it's it's yeah, it's it's about twelve percent, which is like relatively reasonable. But I mean that 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 means that the questions have to be really quite easy. <laughs> it's, um, Sorry, how do you arrive at twelve percent? I don't understand. Well, because it's uh, zero point nine times times itself twenty times because right. it's like each of those events independent of each other, kind of. Yeah, and so you want you almost apply zero point nine times zero point nine times zero point nine twenty times, and it works out to be twelve percent. But in reality, we've got to make the questions a bit more challenging than that. So actually, that's going to be that's going to make it go down. And what what is the again something that I haven't we haven't got clear? Maybe we misunderstood at this at the beginning of the series. But do they keep the money they've earned so far, or does that continue to be risked? So no, they always bank it. Okay. And that's why he writes down the word banked a lot in his diary. Okay. And they, they, they do keep the money. That was a key thing in the show, actually, about whether we should go ahead with that or not. And mm. there was two, two reasons why it was done that way. One was basically off the back of what I said. If, mm. you, if you let the people decide whether they'd stop, then that vastly increases the variability of how long games last. Yeah. And it makes the planning of the show an awful lot more difficult because you yeah. don't know how many people you're going to get at each stage. Whereas if people succeed and they're kind of almost morally forced into going on, then you do know pretty much who's going to be at the next stage. But this, the second thing for me was that giving up isn't very bond. 
it's, it's not like James Bond goes, "Well, I've defeated Spectre, and I, that'll do for today." I don't really, <laughs> don't really feel like uh, defeating the Russians now. Yeah, so I, I killed the henchman, but I don't think I'll go for the top guy. I think you know he's, yeah, he's going to get away anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, they can wait till next month. So it's it's kind of counterintuitive, but actually, I think one thing that none of the reviews and None of the reaction online has mentioned. That's that, interesting. They don't seem people don't seem to have missed it. And it was a very expensive option. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I suppose the point is that they're carrying out missions, and if they carried out a mission, they've carried out the mission, as you say, from a from a Bond spy point of view. You know, they they have succeeded in it. Um, they get their bounty. <laughs> they get their bounty. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's that's interesting. So. You know what we're, we're saying is, you know, it's this whole business of working out the the maths behind the prizes is is a great deal more complicated than it appears on screen, and it's in the end, it's about managing risk. Yep. You know, I've just realised I've been missing a trick all my life, which is that whatever money that I save a production, I should get a percentage. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good idea, actually. Yeah. So you know, if I if if I manage to save like set seven of the nine million, then I should get ten percent of that seven million. I, I think that would that would be fine. I'd, I'd accept that. Yeah. Excellent. Good stuff. So we're back with Richard McCarrow, and it's time for TV show and tell. So uh, Richard, what item have you brought to, to show us? Well, I suppose it would have to be the photograph or photographs that I have of Nelson Mandela up in my house because I once made a documentary uh, with Mark Galloway about Nelson Mandela. And the thing is, apart from the fact that he is obviously one of the most, you know, remarkable historical figures of, you know, the last two centuries, it reminds me because I was working on The World this week and we landed an interview with Mandela. And out of that, we formed a relationship with the ANC and then got the opportunity to make a film with him, except when we pitched it, ITV weren't interested in the film at the time. Uh, And then a year later, this was in the run-up to the first South African elections, suddenly the ITV commissioner called up and said, actually, I do want that Mandela. I think he'd got out of the shower one morning and seen uh, news of the upcoming South Africa. I do want that Mandela film. So I said, okay, well, we'll go back and see if we've got the access. And we no longer had the access. I want the film anyway. So we ended up making a film about Nelson Mandela, which did not include a Nelson Mandela interview within it. (laughs) Uh, And, but in many sort of ways, it made it more powerful because I'm not sure that if we had had the interview, I think it might have slowed the film down and it ended up being a really powerful film with a kind of chorus of different voices and supporters of people who love them. So I, that's why the kind of, I've always kept the photographs up in my house and uh, because it reminds me of the fact that you have to, um, you know, okay, let me put it differently. There's a, there's a fantastic children's book. Um, it was his first book, a guy called Oliver Jeffers. Maybe this should be my object. Um, <laughs> it's called How to Catch a Star. And it came out the year that Anna and my first child was born. And I used to read it to him. Uh, And it's about a little boy sitting there who's lonely and he wants to get a star as a friend. And all sorts of things happens as he waits to get the star. And then at the end of the book, he looks down and in the sea, the star is sitting, uh, which, of course, is a starfish. Now, it was was about a year that I realized what, for me, the message of that book is. 
which is that never give up on your dream of the star. Chase your dream, but you may have to embrace the reality, uh, which isn't the same as the dream, which is a starfish. So in that sense, the Mandela story is, we chased Mandela, we didn't get Mandela, but we sort of got Mandela anyway. <laughs> well, if television work ever dries up, Richard, at least you can, we know you can become a motivational speaker because that's a very nice <laughs> anecdote. It's a lot, yeah. So we uh, very much appreciate your time for joining us today. Uh, thanks very much, Richard McCarroll. Thanks for having me. Okay, and it's time for Four Minute Format, our item at the end of the show where... We try and do our best to come up with a format based on a random stimulus, a keyword that we've plucked at random. I've got six pieces of paper, which I'm showing Justin now. Which number would you like? I'm going to go for number one. Number one. And the word is sky. Sky. Sky is the word. So we have to do our blue sky thinking starting (laughs) from now. Okay, sky. Well, sky is... uh... You've got Sky's the Limit, uh, which has been the kind of basis of a lot of money-based game shows and things like that. Well, there was a, there was a show called The Sky's the Limit yeah, yeah, yeah. in the 60s, I think. Or, yeah. Uh, sky is space, I suppose, as well, setting things up into the sky, rockets. So in other words, the sky isn't the limit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what you mean by sky, but yes. Which troposphere or whatever you're in. Mm. Sky is a broadcaster, um, so this could be a show we could pitch to Sky. Mm. Well, we tossed away the the phrase "blue sky thinking." There, I was just trying yeah, to think. Yeah, we did. It. Yeah. Why is it Why is it called blue sky thinking? Because I I don't think in London we get a chance to do much blue sky thinking. <laughs> yeah, right. Grey sky thinking, or we're yeah, well, I think world in, experts. At, in Beijing, but... they do you know brown sky thinking. <laughs> so that seems to work. Mm. Okay, so Blue Sky Thinking could be some kind of inventions show in which, um, I mean, the nature of Blue Sky Thinking is, is that you don't, you don't, you, you think outside the box, isn't it? You, you try to imagine, <clears throat> you, you let the imagination go without too many rules and regulations and restrictions to begin with. And then you rein things in later on into, into practical form. It sounds like, those kind of very frustrating invention type shows that they do with comedians, none of which had ever actually been made, which always seems to me entirely pointless. But I wonder, okay, how, how about this? So you've got two sets of people on the show. You've got the blue sky thinkers and you've got the practical thinkers. Um, so instead of having, if you like, the inventor embodied in one person, you have the blue sky thinkers and then their ideas get bounced over to the practical hands-on people. So you see those kind of two stages in a, in a mm. show. So could, well, so could it be, well, you could also possibly have a competitive element. And if, it, if there's two teams of builders, the one that came up with the design that was closest to the impossible yeah. invention might be the winner. Yeah, so. that, that's, that's quite nice. You've got stage one and then sort of two parts of stage two. I mean, it makes me think about how Endemol used to work back in the day the the, the um, production company where their their development team was very very much blue sky they weren't people who produced um, they didn't follow shows into production they were entirely intended to sit in a room and blue sky think you know, to think you know without any restrictions whatsoever so and then those some of those ideas would bubble up to the top and then they'd be taken on by 
other groups of people who kind of polished them into something that could actually be made. But the idea was always to start with thinking the impossible uh, and going on from there. And obviously some of those ideas, you know, came heavily off the rails. But I, you know, I quite like the idea of a kind of two-stage, because then as a viewer, you get to enjoy the kind of boundaryless blue sky thinking about how to solve a problem. And then you get to watch, you know, a different type of mind kind of mould and polish and bend that idea into something that is affordable and practical and usable. Yes, excellent. Well, that's actually pretty much our time up already. Oh, wow. so. <laughs> that's because <laughs> we spent the first two minutes with Blue Sky thinking. <laughs> that's how we did. Yes. Well, anyway, I think that's that's. Uh, I think that's pretty much uh, neatly wrapped up. It, the title's probably called Blue Sky Thinking's probably strapped line of uh, inventing the impossible or so, something like that. Excellent. Well, that's it for this time. If you'd like to contact the show, you can uh, tweet us at TV Show Podcast. Or you can email us the old-fashioned way at contact at tvshowandtell.com. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. I've been Justin Scroggy. And this has been TV Show and Tell.